we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello, dear listener. In this episode, I'm going to attempt to explain money and how it works and how it is washing around the world and how that's causing enormous advantages for some and disadvantages for others and we'll try and understand it a bit better and uh, so the first thing I want to talk to you about is just how much money relies on faith and and it's that faith that that keeps it going in many respects and without that faith the whole system could collapse I've often said to people that if I was the Prime Minister of Australia, I would say to people as part of my my policy or my speeches that I would never lie to them about anything except about matters relating to our currency because some lying might be necessary to maintain the faith at some stage. So um, what you could do after this episode is have a look at a uh, podcast that was done by This American Life called The Invention of Money. Just Google that and you'll find it. And they tell three stories in that podcast. And this is one of the podcasts that really had a major effect on my thinking about money and uh, really good podcast. So they talked about three different um, stories in relation to money. And some of you have heard this before, so sorry to repeat myself, but it's worth thinking about in terms of uh, the overall concept of faith. So the first story was in relation to um, the island of Yap. And uh, on the island of Yap, they had a currency which was in the form of these giant limestone circles and uh, that were carved out and were located around the island at different points. And they were in different sizes and the bigger ones were more valuable than the smaller ones. But many of them were far too big to actually move. And those um, carved out circular limestone structures were used as currency on the island. So um, a big one, for example, might be used if a warrior had uh, died in a battle and they wanted to recover the warrior's body, then a tribe might uh, transfer to another tribe a particular limestone circle. And The strange thing is that that limestone circle might not actually physically transfer in possession, like it would be situated on a certain hill, and by agreement they would say, okay, it no longer belongs to tribe A, it belongs to tribe B, and in return they're going to return the body of a warrior. Or there might be other things that are of major importance where they wanted to trade between tribes or resolve conflicts, and they would do so by transferring ownership of these limestone circles. And um, one story was of how uh, the limestone is actually not found on the island of Yap. The workers have to travel to a different island in order to carve out these stones and then bring them back. And on one occasion they were bringing one back and they got close to shore and a storm had come up caused the boat to sink and of course the limestone um, circle sunk to the bottom of the ocean 
but they were close enough to the island of Yap that the uh, that the guys who who'd constructed it were able to swim ashore, and they said, you know, well, we made it, but it's it's over there at the bottom of the ocean. And uh, the people said, no problem, uh, we believe you, we know that you did it, and we know that it's sitting there, and we can still use it. And and in trading between tribes, uh, one of the limestone circles that was traded was the one that lies under the ocean over that way, um, and, and they would trade it as per normal. Now, we may think to ourselves, gosh, what a primitive, stupid system um, those dumb hillbillies came up with there. And um, the purpose of the next two sort of stories, which really are from Western civilization, end up showing that what the Yaps were doing maybe was probably a better system than what we've developed ourselves. So the, uh, the second one was in relation to Brazil, where they were experiencing hyperinflation. And no matter what they did, they could not get inflation under control. And some economists were called in and, sure, they made some changes in terms of, of government spending and whatnot, but what they really had to do was restore faith in the currency. And, um, uh, you know, rampant in hyperinflation, you know, people would go to a shop to buy bread and milk and whatever and... In the shop, there would be people adjusting the prices feverishly in the shop, increasing them. So you sort of raced ahead of the person with the machine uh, trying to buy something at the slightly lower price before they got to it. So um, so anyway, what they did to try and um, regain faith was they created a, a fake uh, sort of currency called a, a URV and they said... Uh, one bottle of milk, for example, is worth one URV. So, when you looked in the sh- in the uh, in the shop, um, the uh, the price tag on the bottle of milk was one URV, and that wouldn't change. The next day it was one URV, and the day after that it was one URV. Each day the um, government would would publish what one URV was in terms of of the actual currency, and they would say, well, today one URV is worth 200 pesos or whatever it was, and then the next day it's 220 pesos, and the next day it's 240 pesos. So people were still having to come up with more pesos every day to pay for their milk. Um, But the actual price tag on the shelf of the item was one URV or two URV, which remained constant. And... The important part of that is that people began to have faith in the URV as a constant, stable thing. You know, they go to the shop and the milk was always one URV. And so uh, it was the peso that had become, I forget actually the name of the currency, but whatever it was, it was, it was that that had kept moving, but the URV stayed the same. And then one day what they said to people was... Um, Okay, um, uh, we're going to have cruceros and, um, uh, sorry, it was cruceros that were the currency that would change. And uh, and one day they said, okay, we're going to get rid of cruceros and we're going to have the real, and the real is one URV. And people had got um, 
so used to the concept of the URV being stable that they then accepted that the real was stable being a one URV. And it was essentially this mind trick that actually stopped the hyperinflation in Brazil, together with a few other things, but, but this ability to get people to have faith in the currency again is what made it work. So the third example from the podcast was just talking about uh, quantitative easing and in America with the Federal Reserve um, in the financial crisis, printing money and not even printing money, but, but actually just somebody in a computer in a fairly nondescript office just sitting down at a computer and typing in you know, a trillion as a figure and then electronically shifting that money to the major banks in the USA. And, you know, a trillion dollars just invented out of nowhere by just a guy sitting at a table. And, um, you know, the sort of the three stories just go to show how much the money relies on our faith and our acceptance of, of the system. And while we believe in it, it will keep going. But uh, I'm worried that down the track we may not believe in it. So that's the purpose of this podcast. Um, and what I'm going to be doing here is looking at a book which is called uh, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of the American Empire. This is by Michael Hudson, and it's his third edition, 2021. He wrote the original edition, first edition, I think nearly 30 years ago recently updated and um, some of you may remember I did an interview with Stephen Hale over modern monetary theory and that was back, um, gee, uh, probably a year or longer ago now and we talked about modern monetary theory but as an aside in that conversation I, I said to him, you know, the US dollar seems to get an advantage as the world's default currency, you know, is you see that as a significant as a problem or was going to change? And um, he was kind of no to all of those uh, questions that uh, he said, you know, the British um, pound sterling was was in uh, was the default currency for a long time, effectively after the Britain had ceased being a superpower. It's sort of hard to shake a default currency and. They last longer than they should, and at this point he couldn't see any reason why the US as a default currency would would change. So um, so I've just sort of, uh, you know, I guess let's be honest, I'm on a bit of a anti-USA bent at the moment, aren't I, in the last, you know, year, two, three? <laughs> and, um, and anyway, this has attracted my attention. So... So I'm just going to give you the shorthand story of what the book says and then I'm going to go into the detail of it. Hopefully I can rattle off the shorthand story in five minutes. Um, and it goes something like this, that um, prior to World War One, obviously America was an emerging superpower. Um, World War One. Uh, the traditional superpowers, UK, France, Germany, of course, uh, knocked themselves silly um, with um, uh, the World War and financially 
you know, crippled themselves, spent money on munitions and and bombing their resources and just the destructive capacity of that on their economies, of course, is obvious. And um, really, according to Michael Hudson, uh, the US only really entered the war when it saw that uh, its potential markets were going to be in economic ruin and, and recognised it had to do something about it. And in any event, entered the war um, um, with the uh, as, a, as an associate rather than as a full ally. And in doing that said, well, we're going to be providing all of this um, armaments and loans and all the rest of it, and we expect all of that to be repaid in full because we're not claiming land as part of this. We're not in this as a traditional um, party to a war. We're not looking to acquire land as a result. Um, We're only in this because we have to be and therefore you're going to have to stump up uh, and repay us when this is all finished. And according to Michael Hudson, that was quite contrary to what normally happens when allies get together in wars. The, uh, their co-contributions are, are normally all forgiven in the wash, provided there's a victory. So what that left um, was that uh, the UK, France, uh, other European allies and Germany um, ended up with a massive debt to the US. And uh, the USA really should have forgiven uh, those loans. We'll get into the detail of that. A bit like any commercial lender these days, if you've lent too much to a um, a borrower, um, it becomes your problem as much as the borrower's. And it's sometimes in your own self-interest to allow people to wipe the slate clean and start again. And and this is what uh, the problem was for... Um, Western economies was that they had this debt that they owed the USA and the USA had trade barriers. So people were not able to produce uh, items that could earn US dollars that would then enable them to pay off the US debt. I mean, they were already crippled by their wartime experience, but Um, add to that the sort of trade barriers that the US had put up and um, sort of very much protectionist policies meant that the Allies could not uh, sell um, easily into the US and and acquire US dollars to pay off the US dollar loans. So uh, that became a major reason for the Depression, which became a major reason for the uh, Germany deciding to have another crack at it and we ended up with World War II. Uh, So after World War II, you might remember again, the US were late to the party, but uh, in any event, um, the US sort of learnt um, from the First World War um, that they couldn't do that again in exactly the same way. So what they ended up doing was creating the International Monetary Fund, the IMF and the World Bank, and basically said to um, the Allies, um, you now have to allow us um, full access to 
all of your markets. So you, Great Britain, with all of these British colonies that were previously um, pound sterling colonies, that's um, that's all open now to American um, access economically. So the USA was in an extremely dominant position compared to the other war-torn countries. And at that point in history, it was very much in their um, interest to declare that uh, the world open up and, and you know, call it, well, we want f- everyone to have free access to all markets, but it was the USA that was really the ones in a position to take advantage of that overseas. And they still had tariffs on their own stuff and still through the IMF and the World Bank would not allow loans that would allow uh, uh, sort of third world countries to create um, businesses, um, products that would compete with America. So um, so essentially uh, America, very dominant economically, forced the other countries to open up all markets so that America could enter. And, and essentially American businesses did. And America at that point acquired almost uh, three quarters of all the gold in the world. And uh, the gold at that point was sort of pegged to currencies. So when people, um, you know, a, a pound sterling was worth a certain amount in gold, the US dollar was worth a certain amount in gold. If you had that currency, you could demand this uh, amount of gold in return for the currency. So that's how... Um, you know, currencies were operating post-World War II. Now, um, uh, as I said, America had three-quarters of the world gold, extremely strong uh, economically as a world power while the others were trying to get back on their feet. What happened then, of course, was that the US decided to enter into wars in Korea and Vietnam. And essentially, those wars were a spending spree that got the USA into a lot of trouble. So where it had been, uh, you know, a surplus country, it was it was selling more stuff and earning foreign currency. Um, it flipped over. They were spending so much on military stuff that was basically responsible for the deficit that the US created, and the gold started leaving. Uh, incredibly quickly, and it then reached the point where the US could not, it didn't have enough gold to say, well, one US dollar is worth X amount of gold and you can come and collect the gold in return for uh, any over the US dollars because it was running out of gold. And Nixon at that point said, and really in the lead up to that, in the lead up to that position, post-World War II, America was so dominant that the US dollar was more or less taken as gold. And it was uh, the economy that was dominant in the world. Transactions were done in US dollars. It was accepted, and a lot of faith, that a US dollar was as good as gold. And um, it developed that that aura about it. So when the US started running out of gold, 
uh, it was then that Nixon decided to take the US dollar off the gold uh, as a sort of de-link it, if you like, and say, no, it's, it's just a US dollar now. It doesn't get you an equivalent uh, piece of gold in return. And really, at that point, the world had a choice where it really could have said, hang on a minute, what do you mean it's not worth gold anymore? And why should we have this faith in this basic paper that you're producing? Um, But the world didn't. And America then uh, was able to generate US dollars without having to have an equivalent backup stock of gold. Um, And the world continued. So, of course, America didn't stop its military spending. So America was still engaged in, in spending more than it was earning. And this, of course caused outflows of American dollars into the hands of other countries. And the way it works in economics, and I'm still trying to get my head around this, but take this one on faith, is that um, the, uh, the other countries have to protect their currency in that they don't want it to be overvalued. So... Um, that, you know, in terms of being competitive in an export market, you really don't want to overvalue your own currency. You want it to be undervalued so that it's easier to sell stuff. And uh, what countries found is that they can't hang on to these US dollars um, because it causes a problem with the valuation of their own currency. So what they do is they end up... Um, having to basically hand the US dollars back to the US government and get a bond in return. So they hand over a billion dollars, or let's, you know, a million dollars to the US uh, government who says, thank you very much for returning our million dollars and we promise in 10 years' time we'll give you uh, that million dollars back plus uh, 3% or something like that. So so essentially these countries were earning US dollars, but they had to put them somewhere, and the only place to put them was in US Treasury bonds. So the dollars went out of America uh, because America was buying military equipment, etc. The countries were receiving it and going... We can't hang on to this. It's not good for our currency. We have to get rid of these American dollars. Let's send them back to America. And they ended up there in US Treasury bonds, which then the US government could then uh, lend out money to its own multinational companies. So it had cheap money. I mean, it's just printing it itself and it's lending it out, uh, you know, Two and three percent. So, essentially, um, the U.S. was able to to lend money then to its own multinational companies at say three percent, and those companies could then go out into the world and buy 
German manufacturing companies, industrial companies, all sorts of companies around the world, and um, with cheap US dollars, where they only had to pay 2 or 3%, and they would then be buying businesses that were earning 15%. Like, it's a no-brainer. And so, um, uh, you know, normally um, countries would pay a price for printing too much money, but that's not what happened to the USA because it had been this default currency, because of the faith that surrounded the US currency and still does. And, you know, if a banana republic did half of what the US was doing in terms of printing money, you'd be experiencing some incredible hyperinflation. But as a default currency and with the other countries having to recycle the US dollars back to US Treasury, um, we end up with this amazing situation where the US essentially goes around buying stuff on the planet with its own currency that it can produce at will and people are accepting it. Now, um, what of course uh, is happening in recent times, uh, and, and you see, you know, this is where uh, just briefly, you know, other countries like Argentina, for example, uh, got into trouble where they had loans from the IMF that they had to repay, but they're in US currency, not their own currency. So as a country, if you're going to owe a debt, you want to owe it in your own currency that you can print. And as I mentioned in the um, episode with Stephen Hale, you know, the problem of the European, the euro, is that you've got countries now that don't control their currency. So someone like Greece, if it had its own currency, could have could have printed its own currency, so allowed a, a devaluation to take place, which would have allowed it to export and gradually get itself back onto its feet. But it's, you know, using the euro, controlled by Brussels, controlled by German banks, had no say over that. So it owed money in a currency that uh, it couldn't control. So... It's an enormous advantage for the USA to be able to just generate at will the default currency that the world uses. Now, um, uh, let's look at China. So China, of course, has you know been accumulating US dollars uh, over the past uh, decades, and and was you know buying US Treasury bonds like everybody else. But uh, China recognises there's an issue here. Uh, at any moment, the US could simply say, well, you're an evil empire and we're not, you know, the, the bonds to you are now just defunct and, and have gone. Um, you know, China would love to use the US dollars and buy US companies in the same way that US companies were able to buy German businesses, for example. But guess what? USA won't let China by US businesses like that. So, uh, so there, the, the, the other thing that's, uh, so what's China to do then? Well, uh, China has great difficulty also in just sort of just buying businesses around the world. Nobody's going to let China buy, you know, Google or something like that. So, what, what's it doing? It's using its US dollars 
in a Belt and Road project where it is it is creating in infrastructure projects that it can, you know, ports and, and other facilities that it can hopefully earn income from. So it's it's spending its US dollars around the world instead of cycling them back to the US Treasury. Smart move by China. That's what they should be doing. The other thing is that the USA says, well, any transaction that involves US dollars, even if it's a transaction between two other countries and doesn't involve us, is a transaction that we can we can regulate. And so um, uh, uh, there's an incentive now for for countries such as Russia, Iran, China, you know, Venezuela, Cuba, um, places like that, to avoid using the U.S. currency, and uh, because they don't want to be holding U.S. Treasury bonds, and um, and and to de-dollarize. And that's where those countries are heading, where they are, are now looking as much as possible to, to trade with each other in their own uh, currencies and totally avoiding the US currency. And again, it's a smart move. That's what they, what they should be doing. So, <coughs> so, um, so, yeah, so that's where we're at in a nutshell where... According to the Michael Hudson argument, the USA has been getting a free lunch and has been benefiting by being this de facto world currency, but it's played its hand too hard. And, um, you know, as, as part of this, it's, you know, it's confiscated, um, you know, Venezuelan gold and other things like that, which caused... European countries to demand their physical gold be returned to them. And also the other part that uh, works in all of this is the IMF and the World Bank. So uh, essentially, you know, these were created uh, straight after the Second World War with America in supreme control and basically with a veto power over whatever the IMF does. And they have basically set up the IMF and the World Bank as institutions of, you know, uh, so-called sort of opening up economies to free trade. And what they do, of course, is they impose um, uh, on countries that need loans uh, draconian neoliberal policies in return for the loans which are in US dollars. So... For a poor country uh, like uh, Argentina that gets into trouble, they would say, um, you're in trouble. Here's a loan of US dollars, but before you get that loan, you're going to have to do some structural changes. You, um, you are going to have to stop a lot of the social security payments that you're making. You're going to have to um, push down labour and wages. You're going to have to deregulate your economy to allow our foreign businesses to come in and you're going to um, uh, allow foreign businesses to come in and um, and you're going to sell off some of your key financial assets. So um, if you've got, uh, you know, your water, electricity and, and other 
services, uh, telecoms owned by the, the government, you're going to have to sell them off and privatise them. And, well, guess what? Um, that's invariably bad for a country. And um, so uh, in, in, in various ways things happen. For example, often these loans have been made to, to cruel dictators and then when they get overthrown, the slightly leftish sort of replacement government comes in and is saddled with, with these debts that, uh, that the, uh, the military junta or whatever um, might have agreed to beforehand. Um, so the, the other part of it is that, is that these countries are never, you know, particularly let's talking Latin America here, they're never given the opportunity to industrialise. They're, they're told you're all about, uh, say, plantation crops or, or resources that can be extracted that, that America can't produce. But they're not given the opportunity to, um, to, to industrialise their economies. The loans are for things that are uh, you know, plantation-based and, and the like or, or just simple mining of resources. So... Nothing that would allow the country to um, uh, industrialise. I mean, you need to protect these industries. If you want to start a car industry in Argentina or elsewhere, you need protection for, uh, you know, a decade while that industry gets up and going. And, you know, IMF just does not allow protection and, in fact, forces an opening. So these countries are... are, are are locked into their primitive economies by these draconian uh, loans. And, I mean, people talk about China with the Belt and Road as being a deals that are going to cruel, you know, these countries are going to pay for it in the end of the day. Well, it can't be any worse than what the IMF and the World Bank have been doing to these countries um, on behalf of the West already. So, um uh, and there's actual you know, evidence that the, uh, the Belt and Road initiatives, of the Chinese have actually been far better behaved than the, than the IMF and the World Bank. Um, so, um, so, yeah, so we've got uh, the IMF and the World Bank going around the world saying to these uh, countries, you're in trouble, the only way you'll get a loan is if it is under these conditions, which then invariably um, make the country's leaders unpopular with the local um, population. And, you know, you end up with more turmoil and governments being overthrown and the rest of it. And uh, so, so this has been going on literally all over the planet. And, uh, you know, even in Russia, I mean, when the oligarchs, you know, when Boris Yeltsin opened up, uh, the economy. I mean, the uh, Russian stock market was the darling of the world there from '94, '95, with lots of American businesses rushing in and buying uh, Soviet infrastructure that was suddenly privatised. So, um, uh, the key to China's success is China said, "No, we're not taking uh, a loan from the IMF or the World Bank." We're not accepting those conditions. We are not letting American businesses come in here and buy our stuff on the cheap. We are maintaining ownership of it, of the commons, by the government. 
And that is what's driving America nuts. It's not that China is running around the world promoting communism in cells in other countries, is it? Their gripe is that they're not allowed in like they have been everywhere else. And any country that has tried, e.g. Venezuela, has been smashed with sanctions. China's too big. That's the problem. And as I explained in last week's episode, when we're looking at the Ukraine, um, what was happening there was the classic IMF ploy where they wanted um, uh, the Ukrainian government to agree to these neoliberal policies, which... uh, which were going to be terrible for the local population, including um, uh, increasing the cost of um, sort of our power supply, I think it was, electricity or something like that, um, which had been subsidised. So the government said, no, we're not going to accept it. And they looked around and Russia had been pressuring them with an alternative deal and they took the Russian Russian deal. So... Um, so that's what's been happening around the world with economies and it's been a lot of IMF intervention with the World Bank constraining and crippling economies, keeping them in, in um, low-value um, economic states, making it very difficult for them to industrialise and... Meanwhile, American multinationals able to get cheap money from their government who can print it, go out buying businesses wherever they like. Meanwhile, other countries finding it difficult to buy American businesses. And and that's where we're at. And this has been going on for a while now. And at some point, I see that uh, China, Russia... Iran, other countries are going to de-dollarise even more, encourage other countries to join them because they just have no option, like the Ukraine. And, no, I don't know if you're a sort of a pessimist and you think that the world's heading for some sort of Armageddon or something like that, then, um, and at times I feel that way and I think to myself the trigger will be currency. When it, if, if there is um, a, really bad, a really bad future for this planet, at some point the currency is going to be part of that story. I don't know how it's going to work out, but you can see that uh, it has inherent problems in it that are really at the moment uh, surviving on faith. And the fundamentals are such that that can't continue forever. So, so there we go. Um, now I'm just going to pause here and look at some detail. So I'm just going to grab some ideas from the various chapters in this book and that will fill out, um, put some flesh on the bones of the story that I've just told you. So um, from Chapter 1, uh, during World War One and its aftermath, Debts among governments came to overshadow private investments that had characterised the pre-war economic situation. So before World War I, 
claims on foreign assets were held mainly by private investors. Um, large government debts were common, but they were held principally by private investors, not by other governments. So private investors would lend money to governments. Um, governments borrowed to finance projects designed in principle to increase national income, and hence their tax revenue. Uh, the, way, the war changed all this. It gave birth to massive claims by governments on other governments. That was a, a crucial feature of World War I. Paramount among the post-war claims were the, um, the debts by the Allies, which uh, in 1923 stood at $28 billion, which was overshadowed by Germany's reparations bill set at $60 billion. So, of course, these obligations did not find any counterpart in productive resources or expanding taxing capacity. I mean, normally when countries borrow those sorts of money, uh, that sort of amounts, they've created something that generates income or tax, but not so in the case of World War I. I think I mentioned earlier that allies normally forgave the debts between themselves uh, after a victory, but he makes a point here that um, most of the wars fought during the century spanning the Napoleonic Wars and World War I were of local and bilateral character, such as the Franco-Prussian War, the Boer War, the Spanish-American War, the Russo-Japanese War. With the exception of the Crimean War, they did not involve large groups of nations, so there were neither inter-allied debts nor subsidies. So World War I was uh, therefore a conflagration of unprecedented scope. So just reading from page 73 here, he says that um, a higher value for sterling meant that a given amount of British pounds would exchange for a greater number of US dollars and thus, and thus pay off a larger value of US dollar debt. So the, uh, the British were inclined to have a high value for sterling because it meant that they could um, pay off more US dollars. But the high exchange rate for sterling um, meant that British exports were uncompetitive. So it reduced their ability to earn money and other foreign exchange. So also the British were promoting high interest rates in order to support this high uh, valuation on the sterling. High interest, of course, deterred new domestic investment. So the attempt to solve this problem by making labour bear the cost, by keeping domestic wages down, is one of the things that the US was saying to these countries is, well, in order to pay us back, if you can't earn the money, you're going to have to just spend less. So there was pressure to keep wages down. And so you had an overvalued pound, high interest rates, pressure to keep wages down, uh, all of that adding up to a wave of strikes culminating in the general strike of 1926. And the American economy itself was distorted because they were keeping interest rates low to prevent the US dollar from rising because they wanted a low US dollar in order to 
make it easier to export. So those low interest rates in the US led to a domestic credit bubble that culminated in the 1929 stock market crash. Just turning back to Germany, uh, he makes a note here that like many third world debtor countries today, Germany could not inflate its way out of debt because the debt was denominated in US dollars or other foreign currency, which the German central bank could not print. Central banks can create a domestic currency, but not the dollars and the other hard currencies necessary to pay foreign debts. Likewise, they cannot increase domestic taxes to pay their foreign currency debts because taxes are levied in local currency. If you're a country in trouble and your debts are in the denomination of another country, you're in trouble. I'd previously had a fairly high opinion of uh, President Roosevelt um, and the New Deal and his, um, uh, his work during the war, but... Um, in this book, Hudson makes the point that the previous president, Hoover, recognised the problem of the amount of debt owed by the former allies and how that was that needed to be forgiven in some way by the US. And uh, he really understood uh, what was going on and he tried to convince Roosevelt uh, in the transition that Roosevelt should adopt a policy of forgiving the debt, but uh, Roosevelt uh, disagreed with that um, and he was insistent that everybody had to pay their debts to the US. So while we might uh, praise Roosevelt for the New Deal, uh, he was partly responsible for the requirement of it as a result of the depression, the parts of which might have been avoided if he had forgiven the debts. Just reading from page 326 where Hudson uh, makes the point, this is around about 1963, I believe, that um, common market economists complained of America's growing investment in European industry and correlated this investment outflow with the size of the overall US payments deficit to demonstrate that the United States was in effect obtaining a cost-free takeover of Europe's economy. Private US investors were spending billions of dollars to buy highly profitable European enterprises. The European recipients of these funds exchanged their dollar proceeds with their central banks to obtain local currency. These central banks, in turn, were pressured by the US Treasury to refrain from cashing in their dollars for US gold on the ground that it might disrupt world financial conditions. They therefore bought US Treasury securities, whose yield was only a fraction of what US investors were extracting from private European companies they were buying out. The result was a financial and commercial arbitrage. The US economy gained control of highly profitable European companies in exchange for paying low interest rates on the dollars that foreign central banks recycled to the US Treasury. In effect, Americans were buying control of Europe's leading industries with funds provided by Europe's central banks themselves. 
there seemed no effective limit on how far this free ride might go, as long as the United States was not compelled to part with its monetary gold in payment for the increase in its private sector net investment in Europe. US Treasury bonds, which are essentially IOUs, were being exchanged for higher paying direct ownership of European assets. And uh, just reading further, the beginning of chapter 15. Who could tell how long its ability to buy up foreign goods and even companies on credit could continue until other countries actually drew the line and stopped absorbing surplus dollars? The Americans saw that only a world monetary breakdown could bring the free ride to an end. Uh, it goes on, the impotence of foreign governments to meaningfully retaliate, short of breaking totally with the United States and its dollar standard, uh, was perceived early as April 1967. Uh, two bank economists, Ralph Peterson from Bank of America and um, John Deaver from Chase Manhattan, uh, Deaver wrote, Foreign central banks would be faced with a serious dilemma. With their dollars no longer freely convertible into gold, they would have to decide what to do with the dollars they own and how to deal with the dollars that would be presented to them by their own commercial banks for conversion into local currencies. But this would be a most disagreeable choice. On the one hand, if they permitted the dollar to depreciate, prices of US goods would drop relative to domestic produced goods. Furthermore, it would make US exports more competitive in third markets. This solution would be vigorously opposed by most exporters and businessmen abroad. Okay, so if they had said these dollars are now worthless, well, if the dollar then depreciated drastically, the US would have a huge advantage with exports. He goes on, on the other hand, if foreign central banks continue to support the dollar at its present rate, meaning pretending everything's still fine, this would place them more unequivocally than ever on a dollar standard if it is made unmistakably clear that in the event of a crisis the US would simply terminate the privilege now given to foreign central banks of buying gold freely, then the burden of decision-making regarding the defence of the dollar would be shifted even more than now from the US to the European and other central banks. So this was in the lead-up to delinking the gold, and they said that's essentially going to be a decision for European banks as to how they deal with it and it's going to be ugly either way, and the US was just going to keep doing what it was doing because its companies could buy foreign assets cheaply as long as they were allowed to. Uh, in the book, he sort of makes a point that in all of these negotiations, negotiations over loans and whatnot between America and other countries, uh, he's quite scathing and critical of uh, the British for capitulating um, and at different times, the only ones who really stood up to the US were the French at different times. Uh, buy the book to get all the detail on that. And his last chapter just looks into the future, and what he says is that uh, the self-defeating US trade sanctions against Russia and China, uh, he calls them self-defeating because... Uh, 
Uh, the trade sanctions against Russia, for example, forced the Russians to to produce internally what they couldn't get from America and its allies. So uh, Russia and China, because of the threat of US sanctions, um, basically grow, produce, build everything that they need themselves without being reliant on imports, which can be snatched away from them at any time. So uh, he calls them um, self-defeating because it's, it's caused Russia and China to, to broaden their economies to cover what will be stopped via sanctions. And he says that um, uh, it's driven these and other uh, nations into a position where their only defence is to do what Britain and the rest of Europe could not do in 1945 and that is create an alternative economic order with its own rules and replace the dollar by negotiating their own mutual currency swaps using gold or using both gold and swaps together. That's where we're heading and the US is not going to like it and when you're looking at world affairs and conflicts between countries, keep in mind these currency issues and the US dollar and how all that plays out and will help explain a lot of what's going on. So there you go. I hope that made sense. And next week, back with a normal panel where we will where we will be discussing religious discrimination bill and all the other nuttery that's been going on. Okay, cheers. Dear listener. Not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link.